I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Tracy Rubel, a practicing psychotherapist and the founder of Sidewalk Talk, a nonprofit listening project. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Tracy Rubel is a therapist, formerly based in San Francisco and now in Heidelberg, Germany, counseling individuals and couples on their relational well-being. Tracy also consults with companies and founders on roles, visioning, and communication. In 2015, Tracy established Sidewalk Talk, a nonprofit dedicated to creating, all over the world, communities of listeners who return to the same public spaces to practice heart-centered listening. Tracy, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here. I'm feeling a little need to be heard, and I know you're a really good listener, so I'm kind of grateful for today to be able to to do this with you. I feel like a good place to start is at the beginning, so um, would you mind sharing a little about uh, what your childhood was like? Describe describe your childhood. This is like the worst question to ask a psychotherapist, okay? Because depending on my mood on that particular day, I'm either going to give you all the shadow material or I'm going to give you all the lessons learned, or I'm going to tell you how I'm still incredibly wounded and screwed up, or I'm going to tell you how I've triumphed and overcome and I'm like this fabulous person because of my childhood. So I'll try to find my middle way. How's that? (laughs) And you could also just describe it. If you were painting a picture Mm. that cast a typical day in your life, I mean, would you be playing with toys, visiting with friends? Mm. Are you a bookworm? Would you be skulking around up to mischief (laughs) Mm, mm. i like that i'll 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 take that ball and run with it um you know how i was as a kid is i I feel like i liked to play and i like to use my body to play so i was somebody who wanted to be outside a lot and did the things that other kids did with kids in the neighborhood like come up with games and forts and kick the can and hide and seek. And back in the day when kids weren't sitting in front of computer devices. And those are sort of my peak life experience moments when I was out in nature or doing something outside with the neighborhood kids. I had a BMX bike and um, I see I was naturally athletic from a young age. And so I really loved that feeling where your thighs would burn riding up a hill and how far could I make it up this hill before I had to walk? And I remember just being thrilled. And so it's no surprise that, you know, I I went to a religious school that didn't have any sports programs. And even though my family was incredibly religious, um, they moved me to public school primarily so I could be in sports programs. And I I actually qualified for state finals my first year in school for the 800 meters. And I remember I thought I was a sprinter because I think when you don't know a lot about sports, you just think, okay, ready, set, go. I'm gonna just, it's the easiest, lowest maintenance. But I had some great coaches and they said, you're a long distance runner, man. And I'm like, oh, I am? And that turns out I qualified for state in the 800 meters. Running was a massive part of my life for many years. And I have never talked about that part of my life on a podcast interview before. So thank you for that, it's kind of fun. Just to run with this idea, uh, forgive the pun, uh, running as a metaphor, 800 meters. Um, and I can't help but then ask, were you in the moment experiencing a journey? Were you running from something or running to something, do you think, as a metaphor? Yeah, I remember the, the first time I came home from a really intense workout and my dad asked me, what do you like about it? And I said, I love how much it hurts and that I can still do it, which is kind of twisted and bizarre. I also... Um, Oh, God, this is, I can't believe I'm going to say it. I took a secret amount of glee. So I was so fast that um, my coaches started putting me in the boys' heats because I, I didn't have any competition with the girls. And I would get a lot of flack from the boys at the start line. And then I would beat them all. 
and I took a great deal of glee at beating the boys. <laughs> I think there's you, a little bit of that still in me, to be quite honest. I like you, beating Were you boys. creating clients for the future? Yeah, was I screwing people up and then they like <laughs> look me up later on? I don't know. And then at the same time, can I just, I got to give a shout out. Do you know that I'm still in connection with those kids that I ran with? It makes me wonder about relationships that are forged through some trial. And of course, this now sounds like some Greek tragedy of sorts, which is not what I mean. But something as simple as an average journey through life doesn't create enough spark. But when you're with people and you're at the extremes of joy or pain, those are where the friendships are forged in something that, that you can anchor onto. Gosh, I, I love that you're making that connection. I think it's really beautiful. Um, and I think about my relationship. I'm going to shout out Susanna Thrasher, who's now, I can't I don't know her married name. Her last name is Thrasher, which you can imagine is a great last name to have on the back of a jersey and having them like kick your butt. And all it says is Thrasher on the back of your jersey. But she did come out and uh, listen at Sidewalk Talk recently. And she's also a Republican and I'm a Democrat. And we are fabulous friends. And we love to talk politics. And, and I think it comes from this spark of uh, joy and pain. And I think she really was somebody that through when I, since I've known her since I was 12 years old. And I would say that even to this day, I could ring her up in a moment's notice and she would 100% have my back around anything going on in my life. I read somewhere, I think it actually was on your website, that you have been a couples therapist since the age of four. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, so I, I, my mom was married six times. And navigating that as a kid, you have a couple different avenues. You can either sort of feel run over by it, or you can just roll up your sleeves and say, all right, let's see. <laughs> Let's see how I can get this guy to stick around. I remember when she was, uh, so my dad that I call dad and whose last name I still hold is also not my biological father. I never met my biological father. Um, but I remember when they got pregnant, some people would, you know, when they have a new sibling, they're like, oh my God, I'm so jealous because I have a new sibling. I'm like, no, I'm stoked. That means this guy might stick around for a while. Woohoo! You know, but, uh, you know, I, as I think about it now, I'm almost 50 years old. I can see so much more clearly than I did as a kid, as you can imagine. And my mother had a lot of stuff. She had a lot of stuff. She had the best I can say without, you know, being untoward towards my mother, although she passed last year, is that she um, had a love addiction. She was in love with falling in love. And there was something very spiritual and holy about that experience. And then when the vagaries of marriage took over, and things got messy and complicated, um, she fell out of love and would find the next person. So she actually created a lot of therapy clients for me, actually. <laughs> oh boy. If you were thinking as a child about ways to keep your mother and then stepfather at the time together, but it didn't work and it didn't work six times, I don't quite know what that does to someone. I, I don't know if you have any reflections on that. Well, a couple of things. You know, you'd think that it makes my relationships with men seem kind of insecure. But ironically, it's my relationships with women that have been the place where I've had to do the most work. I think because of the tension between she and I, it's the place even now after being on my own therapist couch for 20 plus years, frankly, which when you're a therapist, you kind of need to be in therapy your whole life because clients stimulate a lot of your own material. Um, but I had a really, you know, inability to securely attach to somebody. So for me, it took a lot of work to be able to marry my own husband, 
we had to go to couples therapy twice a week leading up to the wedding because I thought I was going to throw up on his shoes walking down the aisle. I'm like, what is this thing called marriage? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm never going to make it. I'm going to pass out or throw up on you. It's never a good look on the uh, on the wedding day, I don't think. No, no. And then it was odd. You know, I, I love telling the story. So I'm going to tell you how I got through that. It wasn't therapy in the end that helped me. I am very intuitive and... I don't know where that comes from because I've always been a little like that. I've been always been a deep thinker, even when I was a little kid. I was this weird kid that would sit at the picture window and stare at a bush for an hour and just ponder. And I was a bookworm. I loved reading books, not deep ones, just ones to kind of chill out, just kind of be by myself. I like to be by myself. People think I'm this massive extrovert. And I'm like, Ooh, I love to be around people and I love big energy. And then I got to go be by myself for a long, long time. <laughs> but oh gosh, I guess it was three days before the wedding. I said to my husband, I said, I figured it out. I figured out how I'm not going to faint on our wedding day. He says, okay. I said, so I, I got these this big pieces of paper and I pinned them to the wall in our office. And I, here's a Sharpie for you and a Sharpie for me. And I want you to write in really big letters everything you hate about me. He's looking at me. He's like, what? Three days before the wedding? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Please, just please. And I don't worry. I'm going to be unrelenting too. I'm going to do the same for you. And it was this page full of astonishingly awful things about me that he just abhors about me. And I stood back and my entire body got calm. And I went, wow, you really see me. You really, really see me and you see me and see all that icky stuff and you still love me and you still want to walk down the aisle with me. Sign me up. And that was it. And my wedding day was the happiest day of my life. And then the other thing that we did with that list is we made an agreement. We did a handshake and said that we sort of agreed on what are, the, what are those things we were each interested in working on and changing and which ones were never going to change. And um, frequently, after 18 years of marriage, he'll complain about something that I do. I said, oh, honey, it was on the list. It's not changing. <laughs> we are both kind of have eight-year-old boy sense of humors, and we make each other, I think the thing that I'm the proudest about about my marriage Seriously, if somebody were to ask, we make each other laugh super hard once every day, like ridiculous hard laugh once every day. I heard on a, uh, a podcast interview you did with someone, I think it was with maybe a friend of yours, Rebecca Wong. I think you suggest in that conversation that you giggle ahead of being vulnerable. I want you to ask about how humor does show up in your life, but also in, in perhaps your professional practice. Look, Humor is actually really important. Humor is not always avoidance. Humor is paving the way. Humor is feathering the nest. Humor is tapping into this notion that, gosh, humanity is really hard. And because it's really hard, it's super silly. And so if we can tap into the absurdity of it all for a moment, then suddenly we're not taking ourselves so seriously. I can't tell you how much laughter is a huge part of my work as a couples therapist. People are too damn serious about therapy. I'm like, oh my God, please. And sometimes couples look at me and like, did you just pick on me about this thing? I'm like, yeah, totally, totally. Because it's, and then I'll usually join them and I'll say, oh my God, I do that thing too. Isn't it ridiculous what we do? And then they'll start laughing and the people feel super safe. Why did you decide to become a psychotherapist? 
And what was the epiphany? If there was an epiphany, or was this kind of like a slow burn? I always wonder if I'm going to really ever tell the truth about this. Maybe I'll risk telling you the actual truth because uh, it's a little woo. It's a little woo woo, a little esoteric. Um, so look, I was in in tech selling software and was hustling, doing what I've always done, which is work incredibly hard. I paid my way through college. Oftentimes, I'd be working three jobs. Um, that's in my family DNA. We're all hard workers. Um, my entire family has an incredible amount of electricity running through our body. So I have, if there's one comment, if you were to ask any human that knows me, they're like, I've never met anyone with as much energy as she has. So I can work a lot, but I have to be careful about that. And that's what was kind of happening. I had my first experience of humble burnout. I'm like, oh, this energy is not, in fact, limitless. <laughs> and I had a bit of, I wouldn't say nervous breakdown. It wasn't that extreme, but I definitely was like, man, there's more to life than this. And I'd made a bit of money. So I took a year off and traveled the world and spent every dime buying art, drinking good wine and surfing, essentially. Um, and came back, got another tech job, but was really anxious about it and thought, boy, this is the wrong thing to be doing. This is really the wrong thing to be doing. I, I, I did it and I had this random, I was, my brother was visiting from out of town and there was like a street tarot card reader the day before I was going back to work. And I said, oh, I'm just going to get a tarot card reading. And she said, yeah, you're, you're going to be out of this job in the next nine months. I'm like, no, <laughs> I need financial security. You're terrifying me. But actually that is in fact what happened. Nine months in, I was laid off. And I was so joyful. I was so happy. I, I had saved enough money that I had a little bit of a cushion. But um, I went and saw a quote unquote spiritual coach that I'd never done before. And he said, you need to go back to graduate school and you need to go to this school. Didn't know anything about it. I went, great, that's what I'm gonna do. And I went and enrolled, signed up. Didn't really know what I was getting into. Only knew that I had been in therapy for six years. And thought, well, maybe if anything, this will just be like two and a half years of intensive therapy and I'll say I have a degree. It wasn't that I was completely committed to becoming a psychotherapist. It just seemed like the next thing to do. But I was committed enough to it that I sold my fancy car. I sold my fancy furniture. I got rid of my condo and moved into an apartment that I shared with other people. I had lived alone for nine years and suddenly I had roommates because I was committed to stretching my funds so I could go back to graduate school. So I was committed to it. Still wasn't sure even a year and a half in if I was actually going to become a psychotherapist. And then when did I actually decide? I guess, you know, I started seeing clients. Ooh, I'll tell you this. This is a fun story. <laughs> my very first session with my very first client, I had my biggest fear come true. I'm like, what if I screw something up and I really make somebody angry and they end up hating me? And that's exactly what I did in my first session. And I'm at a counseling center with all these other therapists. And this woman called the clinic every single day for two weeks talking about what a horrible person I was, what a terrible therapist I was, and that I shouldn't do the job anymore. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's kind of like that everything I hate about you list with my husband. I kind of got that out of the way straight out the gate because after that, I was kind of fearless. I'm like, well, I already know what that feels like. So, you know, and then I had the next kind of person that had, I had a very early in my career, I had someone that fell in love with me and had all this erotic transference, which is also something that some therapists don't deal with their whole, I'm like, well, got that one out of the way so I can deal with that one now too. So I, it, it was an interesting, interesting time. But then when I started seeing couples, I knew. I'm like, ooh, I'm really good at working with two people. I'm good at this. You'd mentioned to me that you'd come from a family background that was fundamentalist in terms of spiritual faith and religion. Mm -hmm. And then you've mentioned this uh, spiritual counselor that sort of directed you towards therapy. Um, you've mentioned tarot readings and this sort of thing. And I just wonder if you have a grounding in what you would regard as um, a mainstream or non-mainstream faith-based traditional practice. I don't, but I feel like I'm seeking one. I'm on, I'm constantly, and actually had a, a powerful conversation with um, 
a therapist about the great loss of not being part of some kind of spiritual tradition. But every time I, whether I go to a, a Buddhist Sangha or I've gone to some more really esoteric gatherings, there's something about the gathering point that sort of creeps me out and I get afraid of being sucked into somebody's dogma again. I'm even frankly afraid of psychological dogma at times. So I am most attracted to earth-based sort of animistic, like Jungian, collective unconscious types of spirituality. That's the best I can say, but I'm constantly looking for my, for my place. One day it'll happen. Looking out the window Fogging up the glass I trace the skyline with my finger I'm wondering where you're at Okay, let me ask you about um, teeth grinding, and this will make sense in a minute. Um, one of the interesting tidbits I read uh, a few months ago was about how dentists are seeing more patients who are grinding their teeth, which is all a stress reaction. And it's a stress reaction to so much of what's happening in the world, economic collapse, uh, you know, global isolation, the Trump administration, the pandemic, of course. And so I'm wondering, just over the last several years, what you have seen in your practice that, that has given you sort of this meta view of the psychological ills that are affecting society at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's one that stands out that's not specific to the pandemic, but hands down, couples really suffer after they have their first child or second child. And I get... Um, frustrated, especially when I have this context of living in Germany or having family in Germany, because what I recognize is that they are bearing the burden as if there's a psychological problem with them, that parenting is so hard. And I'm like, but you're in a collective that doesn't support you at all. Because in Germany, you get 18 months paid parental leave, you get free preschool, you have almost free healthcare, and you have free college. And for a country that claims to really value families, the amount of psychological burden of not being supported in raising a family that plays out psychologically is intense. It's really, really intense. So that's number one. Number two, there's a lot more consciousness, at least amongst my clients, about equity and division of labor when it's a heterosexual couple and how they're navigating that and being interested in talking about that. I've had more and more young couples bring that into the sessions. If I'm going to have a baby with you, I'm not going to give up my career to be a parent. And I'm going to expect you to be an equal participant, right? Similarly, in the conversations about money. Um, so those are some of the themes that have been interesting, you know, all of us have attachment stuff. So those are that's kind of the woundology that kind of follows us. But I'm also interested in looking at what's right about couples too. And I, I do feel um, a lot of couples will come in a little bit too addicted to growth in some ways. I'm like, well, what about accepting how you are though, right? Like I, I could be colluding with the part of you that thinks you're not good enough as you are 
if I sort of get on this bandwagon that you need to grow so much. But part of what needs to be grown here is your ability to accept who you are, just like that list of all the things my husband hates about me. And so part of my work is to love them as they are and then get them to really articulate, well, what do you want to change and what do you not want to change? Like, what kinds of weird things do you do that you actually kind of secretly like? And they just think that's nuts when I ask them that, but most of the time they feel liberated. And then finally, to answer your question relative to COVID, um, I think there's actually been an odd positive. <laughs> there's some positives, actually, more positives than negatives, surprisingly. Couples are stoked to not be carting kids all over town, and they're stoked to have a schedule that is less jam-packed. And they're actually seeing the benefits of that, right? They are, as you would expect, confronting problems in their marriage that their distractions hid. So they are having to face those. But I was saying to someone the other day, I said, man, everybody should be in couples therapy right now because you're going to get your money's worth out of it because you're with each other all the time. So whatever we talk about in couples therapy, it's not like they're going off to work and not seeing each other for the rest of the week. They're in the house together. And so I'm actually finding couples doing a lot of better work right now because they're in the vicinity of one another physically for longer periods of time. So that's been kind of fun. And then, uh, you know, just the awareness that, oh gosh, my partner can't be everything to me. I really miss my friends. I'm like, that's right. That's the Esther Perel sort of lens. Your partner can't be your priest and your sibling and your lover and your business partner and your best friend and your soulmate. They have to serve a role and then these community members serve other roles. So the couples now are more physically proximate doing the work, but you in turn have become more remote using virtual tools to engage with couples, uh, partly because of geographic distance. You, you now live in Germany, and I'm sure you have clients all over. And because of the pandemic, of course, as well. That's another wrinkle. And so I'm just really interested how this dance has shifted with you being remote and them closer. What have been the benefits and, and perhaps the the you know, the barriers wrought by the pandemic or going virtual for the practice you have? Well, the upside is for sure, for some folks that have any sort of intimacy avoidance by not having me in the room, they feel oddly a little safer, right? Second, we're actually physically closer to each other to be on the screen. I actually have to come much closer so I can see their facial expressions much more keenly because they're coming close to the screen. The downside is that when I'm working with couples in my office, I actually get couples to stand up and move around and touch each other. And, and I have couples standing and moving all the time, and I don't do that as much. I still can do a little bit of it, but I'm good at improvising, so it hasn't been a problem. And then finally, I think there's been a little bit of pride or sweetness to bring me into their home. There's something about, and it's been important. I, I sometimes, I used to in California go drive to couples' homes for couples that had kids that couldn't find a sitter or their babies were too little to feel comfortable leaving them with a sitter. I would go do couples therapy sessions in homes and really realize that seeing somebody's home is actually super important to see how they move in their space and how their space is set up. And it tells a lot about their insides, right? And the joy that they get when their kid sneaks into the room and I get to see a little kid and they get to share them with me um, is so sweet. Um, and I am an animal lover and I have met more kitty cats and doggies in the last year. As per <laughs> uh, and I just, they, they love seeing my delight in their family members. It makes them feel sweet about our connection.
we've been talking about matters of the heart, of the mind, of connection. Um, but you're also in business. And so this is a little tongue-in-cheek here, but but how do the demands of cold-blooded capitalism align with your philosophy about being a therapist? I think I have to ask you something about that question. This would be the, uh, as Judy Hess, I'll say, my, my group therapy instructor said, there's always a statement behind every question. That question feels like there's a statement behind it for you. So what, what do you mean by that question? So if we just turn the tables on me, um, I think there was a massive misalignment between getting rewarded for work that has real meaning and value and getting rewarded for work that is just destructive and absorbing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think capitalism by its nature is a really efficient means of running an economy, but only when the economy is subservient to social needs. Mm. Um, so I'm always curious about how entrepreneurs and business people um, or anybody who's trying to make their way in the world, how they align, for me, what have to be tensions between something that feels morally and socially worthy that you'd mm -hmm. be proud of when you, you know, when you pass versus the business demands of making that possible so that you can just make a living. Well, probably you and I will need to have a, a coaching session where you coach me after this call because I feel like I'm wrestling with this point right now. It's, it doesn't come up as much for me as a therapist um, because I can kind of hide behind the model that the state sets up for me, right? That there's a code that I put in. Sometimes people get reimbursed via their insurance. I'm not a coach. I'm a therapist. So I am a health provider. Um, as far as how I set my fees, you know, I haven't raised my fees in three years um, I'm not the cheapest game in town. I'm not the most expensive game in town. I probably am a little low for my skill level, but I actually set my fees based on what I need to sustain my family. And I set my fees based on what my heart tells me. And I know that's kind of weird, but there's this interesting thing that happens in the therapy room. And it certainly happened for me as a client. There is something also a little spiritual about the fee because the fee also does something to us psychologically that says, A, the more I pay you, the more space I will allow myself to take up in this room with you. The more I pay you, the harder I'm going to work or the deeper I'm willing to go or the more I'm going to stretch. And that part of the fee structure is a symbolic gesture that says I'm investing in myself and I'm taking this seriously, right? Where it's been challenging for me is funding sidewalk talk because I think I've set up a bit of a codependent relationship where I'm giving everything away for free in terms of my time. And I was, I was actually, frankly, before this call, a little sad because every once in a while, someone will push back on, why do you need to fundraise? And in my heart, I'm like, because this is all of my labor that I'm giving away for free. And when you ask that question, I feel really injured because I feel like you don't value how much time, we're talking 30 hours a week of my time that I give away to this organization to support you. And then the tension came up with another member who said, you know, we shouldn't scale. You shouldn't scale anymore. And I'm always feeling that tension because capitalism loves scale, right? And at times I really align with this person's view. I'm like, yeah, I agree. But at the same time, I'm trying to make an impact on culture and change culture. And I do feel like I have, this is me standing in my power a little more, not being so wimpy about that. I'm always afraid that I'm going to sound like an egotistical asshat. So just know that I know that I have something unique to offer to this conversation around listening because most listening conversations are about active listening, which is like one third the skill set required to be a listener. And most of our focus is number one, how do we put our bodies out there where we're going to meet people unlike us? I said to you before, I'm newly in touch with this idea of sitting on the land reclaiming our ancestral roots, which is a part of belonging that's much, much deeper than having friends <laughs> that we connect to. But the bigger piece that 
I've decided I've next year I really want to get on. I finally feel ready to get on a TED stage because I, it's this notion of, and this links to capitalism, by the way. Capitalism is about output. Listening is about input. Um, I see that you have a black light. We're recording this and we can see each other while we're talking for those that are listening. And Stuart has a Black Lives Matter sign in his window. I believe that this drive that capitalism promotes in us to constantly output are the ingredients to have us actually use another human life for profit. Okay. But when we actually are better at input or receiving a human heart, hearing who they are, and walking around the world as a receptive being, I believe it's much harder for us to support injustice of any kind because the very nature of being an organism that is taking in is also an organism that is being with. It's an organism that's creating belonging. It's an organism that knows how to tolerate diversity and difference and even celebrate a diverse ecosystem. And output doesn't do that. Output is about pushing out. And so I feel really compelled to be a beacon for this conversation about what it means to create receptive human beings, receptive human beings. And I'm somebody that talks a lot. I need to learn how to be a receptive human being. So me too. I'm not any better than anyone else. You'll never feel the way I feel. You don't know if my love is real. Baby, listen to me. Here's the deal. When you're not here, I'm not the same. I'm needing a new chapter, babe. Been stuck here in a bed for days. I've been staring at the You've set up this really phenomenal initiative, this entity, Sidewalk Talk. So you founded it in 2015, and its mission is to create inclusive and diverse communities of listeners who practice heart-centered listening in public spaces for greater community belonging, engaged work teams, and physical, mental, and mental health. So it's 100% volunteer, 7,000 volunteers across more than 50 cities spread over 14 countries, and over 11,000 people are heard each year. What is it about people? Why is it that people are so keen to be heard? And why are so many people so keen to be listeners? Well, I'll start with the listener part. And it's one of the things that we've tried to beef up in our training. My favorite listeners are the ones that are really there to cultivate themselves as receptors, as, as people that walk around the world curiously wondering about people. What we do get sometimes, especially if there's some big PR piece on us, is we get a lot of helpers. And I challenge people that are out there to help. I don't want to denigrate helping, okay? But there's a power dynamic in helping. And helping is itself output. And we're really much focused on input. So I challenge people as they're listening on the sidewalk, see if you can let go of your need to help. See if you can actually delight in this human as they are. And it's changed how I am as a therapist because I also help a little less. That's kind of about me wondering, am I efficacious as a human? And then that's about me, not again about receiving them because I'm now sort of pressuring them with, I need you to let me help you so I feel good about me. <laughs> right? 
And so some people get that. Some people are still working on it. To quote Carl Rogers, it doesn't just feel damn good to be heard, which is a Carl Rogers quote. It feels damn good to hear. You know, I realize that when I'm having a bad day, I'll call up a friend. Sometimes I'll call up a friend and just want them to soothe me and say all the things I want them to say. But I'm learning more and more. Call up a friend and say, tell me what's going on with you. Works way better. Because it gives me a little bit of a break from the mental chatter in my own mind and the cognitive distortions that I'm making up about the problem I'm facing in my life. I'm the queen of worst case scenario thinking. And it's worst case scenario com- thinking comes from a dysregulated nervous system. But if you take 15 minutes listening to your own friend about something going on in their life, your nervous system is going to be re-regulated again. So you didn't even have to go do all this extra work challenging your negative thoughts that cognitive behavioral therapy would have you do. Just go listen to somebody else and you're going to feel better. You're going to feel connected. You're going to feel a sense of blogging. You're going to feel calm. You're going to feel good. Why do people want to be heard? I mean, that's the the easier one, but there's something very touched me when you ask that because I guess I'm feeling the place in me that I said at the top of the conversation wants to be heard. I want to be known and people want to be known But going back to capitalism, where we're curating our brand and really carefully sort of it matters what people think of us. Um, We're in a social media context now. We're, I mean, subliminally, we are curating what we want people to to think and know about us. But actually, we really want to be known. And we really want to be known deeply. And what's been really fun about the context of sidewalk talk is because we are strangers, it's almost better. Because people are like, woo, I can just really let it all hang out because I am never going to see this human being again. So there's something very special about having some random stranger on the sidewalk that you are likely, especially in bigger cities, it's tougher in a smaller settings where you're never going to see this human again. That's so freeing, so liberating. Uh, I'm wondering if there are some people that need to be heard more than others and some that need to be better listeners than others. And to give that some concrete context, you, through Sidewalk Talk, had a men listening initiative that was happening around the time of the Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh hearings. And... I'm just wondering if sort of extrapolating out from that, you, you just have some sense from your experience that some people need to be heard more and some need to do more listening. Well, I can give you anecdotals. Uh, we have a lot more men sit down and share than women. And we have a lot more men sit down and share deeply. And that could be the nature that women move towards tend and befriend under duress um, to be a little sociopolitical. I, I tell people, men are really negatively impacted by patriarchy too. They really have had many years of being told that they are providers and doers and rescuers and knights on a horse, but they're so much more than that. And they're feeling the burden of that too. And they want a place to to talk about some of those things. Um. And we have more women that show up as listeners. There was one night in San Francisco, we had like seven women. And this guy goes, oh, is this like speed dating on the street? Like, no. (laughs) Yeah. You can't come around just as you please. Pretend to wear your heart on the sleeve. Claiming to have found this in. You mentioned uh, curating one's brand. I mean, that's very much a part of modern society. And I, I just got to wondering, you have 
done so much talking and so much listening, both professionally and in terms of your um, commitment to community, mm-hmm. any number of interviews, any number of uh, podcasts, so on and so forth, of which this this will be one of many. I wonder, is it hard for you to be constantly authentic? Were you perpetually kind of rewriting either history or your response to questions? Are you sort of perpetually reimagining a narrative? And I ask that just because I can't quite imagine what it's like to be you having to perpetually listen and answer questions. Mm. Is it hard? I don't think it's hard because I don't actually prepare anything. (laughs) So some brand strategist, which I know used to do, would probably hate having a client like me because I don't stick to message. It's whatever's true for me in that moment. Um, I, I think if there's anything that I'm really proud of about, my favorite thing about myself is my earnestness. It really is my favorite thing about myself. Um, and my ability to take responsibility for my own poop. Because <laughs> I have plenty. Um, so you can confront me on stuff and say, boy, you really screwed that up. And I'm like, oh, God, I sure did. And those those are my two favorite qualities. And uh, so what that means is that when I show up in these conversations, I'm really just in the moment with you responding based on what I know at that current moment in time. Um, And my why behind listening on the sidewalk and who I am is an evolution all the time. It's kind of an evolution every hour. Call me in an hour and I might talk in a totally different way than I'm speaking now. And that's, that's, that's right. And that's partly why we need to be, be better listeners too, because we need to give people the space to be different all the time. This show will air sometime just right at the new year, which mm. for many people um, you know, is a traditional time to reflect, to think about the year we've had, to make resolutions or intentions for the year coming up. Um, and uh, you know, without necessarily leaning too hard into that, um, as it were, I, I guess a bit of a cliche, but 2020 has been incredibly hard for many, many people. Many people can't see clearly what 2021 will look like. I'm just wondering if from within yourself personally or as a professional, if you have any thoughts about your own 21 and what advice or direction or comfort you would offer people as they think about this transitional moment. (laughs) So I immediately went to my head and thought, ooh, I've got to be clever as a therapist. And then I went to my heart and I'm like, ooh, this is what you really want to say. So I'm going to go with what you really want to say, even though it's not super cute or it's kind of esoteric and weird, but I really believe this in my bones and it almost makes me want to cry. Um, Belonging is such an important word and I would invite everyone to meditate with that word and really wonder about it. But more importantly, to me, it's the root of so much pain. It, it really is that the not belonging is the root of so much in us. And while we're apart and COVID has had us wonder, where do I belong and who are my people? The practice that I've been engaging in that, has, that is slowly, because I don't want to say I'm there yet, I'm new to it transformed my heart is to deeply touch into the belonging that's always there at all times. And so I do a meditation practice that, and I actually meditate live every day. You can join me on my Instagram account, not because I'm a guru of meditation because I'm trying to keep myself accountable to actually doing the damn thing (laughs) because I'm a doer and I'm like, oh man, I got to meditate. So if I tell people I'm going to do it on Instagram, I'll actually do it. The practice is that I sit and I first feel the belonging to my body. So I fully feel embodied. Next, I feel my belonging as another creature on the earth and my incredible belonging amongst all the creatures on the earth. And that I am belonging right there with the trees and the grasses, the animals and the fishes and the birds. And I meditate there in that, I feel it, it's so available. And then after sitting and feeling all those yummy animals and plants, I then feel the belonging of every human on the planet sitting to my right and left, all snuggled up together. And I feel us all together. We all belong to each other. 
And then finally, at the back of me, I feel the ancestors that have come before and that they are there all the time and that I can sit in that belonging. And when I can bring that full-hearted belongingness out into the world, I'm, first of all, say it in a crass way, I'm less of a pain to my friends because I'm not so clingy. But I think I move with greater intention and live for my core values better. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks, Stuart. My guest today has been Tracy Rubel, a practicing psychotherapist and the founder of Sidewalk Talk, a nonprofit listening project. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Tracy. This has been a real pleasure. Likewise. I dance like the drunk uncle at, at the <laughs> right? But I love to let that go in the house because why not? <laughs> the visual is awesome. The visual I'm getting right now, it's just the best. Mm. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.